Nutrition is brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness. Slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestone. Well, welcome to Edition of Nutrition. I am Darlene Kavis, licensed nutritionist, certified nutrition specialist, and this show is brought to you by Nutritional Weight and Wellness, a company providing life-changing nutrition education and nutrition therapy. Our co-host today is Leah Wetzel, who is also a licensed nutritionist and a certified nutrition specialist. Yes. And we also have a new producer this morning, so things are a little... <laughs> Oh, we have a little little out of balance, but we'll do it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, anyway, good morning, Leah. Good morning, Dar. It's great to be here with you today. So, we actually have, we're supposed to have a guest. So Yes. And we're hoping that uh, uh, Dr. Bland will call in now, and, uh, and I think maybe um, we've got him perhaps on the line. Leah, th- what do you think? Dr. Land, there. I think we probably have him on the line. And a good morning. Oh, good, good morning. morning to you. Great, great to hear you. Oh, likewise. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so we'll just go ahead, Leah. Let's yeah. go ahead with our show then. Yeah, we we have a great show planned today. We are very excited to have you on. And our guest today, Dr. Bland, um, has been called by Dr. Oz the Godfather of Functional Medicine. You know, we're really honored to have Dr. Jeffrey Bland join us today to discuss his new book, The Disease Delusion. That's a mouthful right there, Dr. Bland. (laughs) It certainly is. You know, Dr. Bland has authored five books on nutritional medicine, which is really great. And this is for healthcare professionals and six additional books on nutrition and health for just the general population. And, you know, I've read and been inspired by many of Dr. Bland's other books, but I think The Disease Delusion is such an important read today because the subtitle, this is a great subtitle, Conquering the Cause of Chronic Illness for a Healthier, Longer, Happier Life. So, Dr. Bland, we really welcome you to the show, and I believe everyone wants a healthier, longer, and happier life. You know, we live longer today, don't we? But... Are we living better? Yes, I think that is really the question. And uh, unfortunately, the, um, the time in which we live is very contradictory because we, we are living longer. The, the data is very clear. But we also are seeing a rising tide of these chronic illnesses, which include things like uh, diabetes and uh, uh, hypertension and uh, arthritis and uh, dementia and uh, various forms of heart disease and uh, things that relate to our um, autoimmune disease. All mm-hmm. of these uh, are conditions which are actually increasing not only in the older population, but actually, unfortunately, uh, are increasing in, in younger people where we used to think uh, these were diseases of, of age, but now we're starting to see uh, even uh, teenagers getting uh, type 2 diabetes and, and uh, getting things that we we used to reserve only for the last portion of our lives. So it, it, it really is concerning as to why we are, are witnessing this, uh, this paradox of increasing mean average life expectancy, but also uh, increasing disability and, and uh, what I would call robbing from us the, uh, the productive years of our life that we, we really deserve to have high-level health and enjoy uh, 
what good health can bring to us. So the question is, what do we do about it? And that's, that's what the book is all about. That's right. Yeah. And Dr. Blunt, thank you again for joining us this morning. I know it's much earlier for you in California. Is it six o'clock in the morning where you are? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we appreciate we appreciate you getting up this early morning and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And for the past 35 years, you've been recognized leader in the field of nutrition. And really, kind of, what are some chronic illnesses you see in the society today? And why did you write The Disease Delusion? Well, I think the, um, the most common condition that we're seeing, and everyone knows this because we hear about the, the, the rate of obesity increasing and mm-hmm. we hear about the, uh, uh, the rate of diabetes increasing, this has often been called diabesity, and uh, you know people say, "Well, where's where's this coming from?" I mean, I thought uh, I thought diabetes was something that we just got in our genes and it was inherited, and and if we were unfortunate to have uh, parents that had diabetes, and we would have uh, a high risk of diabetes. But now we see it's much more than that. And and uh, the reason I wrote the book, and the, and the title of the book obviously is very contradictory because we know they're diseases. So why would there be a delusion about diseases. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not a delusion that we have diseases. The delusion is where they came from. And I think that uh, there's this sense in many people that, and, and including uh, people within the, the medical field as well, that these diseases are, are basically genetically inherited. They, uh, they're passed down in families. Uh, if, if you didn't uh, have the luck of the draw, you might have gotten these diseases to heart disease or dementia or to a diabetes or arthritis, and there's little you can do about it. And uh, the 21st century aha, the big discovery that came out of the Human Genome Project, is that uh, these diseases are not hardwired to our genes. Uh, what they are are related to how we treat our genes, the That's kinds of experiences that we have individually that relate to our lifestyles, to our our diet, our activity patterns, stress patterns, exposure to to toxins. Uh, things that uh, actually are modifiable, things that if we knew um, and asked the right questions, we could actually modify the way that we were treating our genes, the exposures that our genes were getting, and, and therefore change the way our genes were expressed. And we could turn on the white light of good health that comes from the, the genes that are residing within our, our, our heritage that are really the good health genes, and we could turn off the uh, what I call the tragedy genes, which are those that associate themselves with chronic illness. And that's the, uh, that's the real aha of the 21st century, is this discovery that we are a lot more in control of our health than we actually thought. You know, <clears throat> Dr. Bland, I think I'm a perfect example of that because several years ago, <clears throat> when I looked at my family history of heart disease, you know, my, bro- my brothers and my mother and, and everyone in my family, I said to myself, well, I think you probably have some cardiovascular genes that are not very good. So I made a conscious effort to change my eating and my lifestyle so that I could, what I call, beat my genes, you know. And so far, it's working. And, uh, you know, I have to work really hard at it. But I think if we could empower people to start thinking in terms of looking at their family history and looking at possible predispositions to some of these genes, and making that decision, and I think that's what your book is trying to is basically doing, and I think this is what you've been talking to professionals for a long time about. Yep. Probably I was sitting in one of your lectures yes. at one time and saying, "That's me. I think I can make a change." And so, uh, if we, and that's kind of what we have this radio show for, is to help people realize some of these facts 
and not just say it. Because, Leah, you and I hear this in classes all the time. Oh, you know, my mother had arthritis, yeah. so I'm going to have arthritis. That's right. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's changing people's view of things. And, and empowering them to know they can do something about it. Right. Yeah. I think that the two of you are saying exactly what the, the key message is of the book, um, and that is how do we as individuals know what questions to ask? Uh, because the questions we ask determine the answers we get. That's right. So if we don't know what questions to ask about uh, what are the uniqueness uh, of our genes that we can, we can use to, to power up good health, uh, then we probably are not going to get the answers we want. And so the, uh, the book is really trying to get the reader to understand what we've learned over the last uh, oh, 35 to 40 years that I've been involved in both clinical work and, and, um, and teaching to, um, to really uh, empower the person, the reader, to know what questions to ask in designing their own kind of uh, personal approach towards uh, uh, getting the most out of their genes. And, you know, even those people who have had... Uh, a significant family history of, of, of cancer. Mm-hmm. It's being found now that uh, you can actually design certain programs that would uh, greatly limit the uh, the relative risk of uh, those those genes that we call cancer-related genes from being expressed. And I think this is uh, probably the best gift that we would ever ever learn as to how to turn on those aspects that will keep those. Uh, those disease genes at bay and and turn on the what I call the health giving genes that uh, lead a long healthy life. You know, I think uh, Dr. Bland, w- one of the things that I think we should when we come back, we're going to have to take a break here in a couple of minutes or a minute maybe. Yeah. <laughs> when we come back, maybe we could kind of talk about, you know, because all your information is really based on research. It isn't just somebody's theory, is it? And so maybe, because I know I've been attending your seminars for over 25 years, and it's more than research-based. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about that. But Leah, you're going to take us out on break? Sure. Great. You're listening to Dishing Up Nutrition with our special guest, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, the author of The Disease Delusion. Dr. Bland has been coming to Minnesota for over 37 years to educate healthcare professionals on the most up-to-date and important nutrition research. He is a teacher of medical nutrition therapy, treating the cause of the disease, not just the symptoms. He was a research director at the Linus Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine, the co-founder of the Institute of Functional Medicine, and the founder president of the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. We'll be right back. Here's a little weight loss math. On any given day, 100 million of us are on a diet, and we spend $20 billion a year on books, plans, bills, and surgeries. So how come for so many people, the number on the scale is so upsetting? It's like cholesterol and blood pressure numbers, higher than it should be. Are you looking for a new way to change those numbers? Then let me tell you about the Nutrition for Weight Loss program at Nutritional Weight and Wellness. Now think about it for a minute. The approach is called nutrition for weight loss, not feeling too hungry to sleep for weight loss or eating icky bars for weight loss. Nutrition for weight loss teaches you how to eat real food to leave you satisfied and in balance, how to use nutrition to naturally bump up your metabolism. It's based on sound science, not celebrities who make millions pitching products. Are you ready to see how it adds up for you? Then dial the number at Nutritional Weight and Wellness. It's 651-699-3438 or go online at weightandwellness.com to sign up for the Nutrition for Weight Loss program. Hey, 
Well, welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. You know, I love to go through Dr. Bland's book, The Disease Delusion, and pick out gems of information, such as, here's one, Dr. Suzanne Kraft, a neuropsychologist and a research team, identified what she termed diabetes of the brain as the origin of Alzheimer's in certain individuals. People who have poor blood sugar control because of their diet have been found to experience a particularly high incidence of Alzheimer's. So the conclusion is desserts, you know, like that pumpkin pie. Coming up. Or all that sugar <laughs> yeah. that's coming up, maybe, not for most of us, but yeah. some of us. You know, the processed carbs, the muffins, the cereals, all have been linked to Alzheimer's. And they've type 3 diabetes, I think. Yes. I've heard that thrown out a lot now. Yes. Just quite remarkable. So there's lots of gems of information there in his are. book. There so. are. Uh, Dr. Bland. There is. There seems to be a disconnect of what treatments available are to chronically ill people. You use a term I hadn't heard before called polypharmacy. What is polypharmacy? Well, I think this is a very interesting part of where we are with medicine right now. And I think uh, actually a good example of this would be this uh, example of Alzheimer's disease that you just mentioned. Yeah. You know, the drug companies have spent uh, literally... Uh, billions of dollars over the last uh, 10 to 15 years in, in uh, trying to develop uh, a drug that would treat Alzheimer's successfully. And uh, there have been many different scientific approaches that have been used. I won't go through them all, but uh, have, been, have been designed to try to attack or to treat a specific component of what researchers have identified as the uh, pathology that we call Alzheimer's disease. And unfortunately, uh, I think we all know that this uh, this extraordinary expenditure of research money done by extraordinary talented uh, researchers has come up dry. There Mm -hmm. hasn't been a drug that has been discovered to treat Alzheimer's. And the reason for it is that Alzheimer's, like virtually every chronic disease, is not a single condition. It's not caused by one thing. It has multiple uh, factors that lead to its uh, uh, being called ultimately a disease, and it manifests itself differently from person to person. So there's there are no two patients that have the identical form of Alzheimer's disease, just like there's no two patients that have the identical form of, of type 2 diabetes or of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. These, uh, these vary in the way that they are caused and how they are seen in a person. So the, the way that the drug companies have approached this is to say, well, if we can't find a drug that would treat it, we, uh, let's just find a, a family of drugs that will treat the different symptoms. So we might... Uh, use three or four or five different drugs that have different uh, mechanisms of, of action so we can kind of modify the symptoms and maybe uh, uh, reduce the, uh, the expression of the, of the signs of the disease. Um, this is what's called polypharmacy, and it's very common to find individuals that uh, have accumulated over the years more and more prescriptions. And, uh, you know, there are some people that are taking more than 10 drugs a day. Mm-hmm. Well, we have clients that come in that, symptoms. that have been taking like 16 to 18 yeah. different medications a yes. day. And, and then we don't know how those are interacting one with the other. They, they have potential adverse uh, side effects when they interact with one another. So what, what this is treating the cause rather than the effect. And the, uh, the functional medicine model, as you in, uh, suggested in the earlier discussion, is a model that goes back and says, okay, just a minute. Uh, if these diseases are not caused by a single thing, what are the variables that that individual has that we can modify that would, in fact, uh, lead to 
uh, the treatment of its cause rather than just its effect. And, and with Alzheimer's, uh, we're, we're collaborating with all sorts of different investigators, one of who is Dr. Dale Bredesen, who's in charge of the Alzheimer's Research Facility at uh, University of California, Los Angeles uh, Medical School. Uh, and, and he's just published a paper in which he's talked about uh, the ability to cause um, remission in 26 patients of Alzheimer's disease uh, that were not put on drugs at all. They were put on the kinds of programs that we talk about in disease delusion that were based upon the unique individual needs of that patient and things like uh, getting away from sugar in their diet and getting them onto a low glycemic low diet, uh, things like uh, improving their mitochondrial bioenergetics by getting on certain nutrients that uh, activate their brain's energy processes and so forth. So this is the new medicine of the 21st century, and that's that's really the reason I wrote the book, was to try to uh, make this accessible to people now so they wouldn't have to wait another 10 to 15 years before it started to be well understood. It's it all A lot of it sounds like it's based on what people are putting in their mouth, their nutrition, and probably their exercise patterns, things that we talk about all the day, every day, and and. I hope we help people to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's always our goal is to help people actually do these plans uh, on a day-to-day basis, you know, not just for, you know, to lose a few pounds. You know, that doesn't really work, not to just, lose, you know, but to do it day after day. You know, I've had clients that for 15 years, mm-hmm. that they come in once a month for 15 years because, you know, maybe they're recovering from cancer or you know, who knows, you know, depression, different types of uh, chronic illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what you're doing in your show and and what you just described is exactly the fundamental approach that we're talking about in disease delusion that, uh, you know, for instance, uh, the food of one can be the poison of another. We all know that. So, you know, the concept that there is one good diet or one perfect diet for everybody is is ridiculous when That's we actually right. understand the nature of genes and the variety of the ways that they are expressed in different individuals. So the question is, what's the right approach for you? Not what somebody else said, or even your brother or sister would say, oh, I'm on a great program. Well, that's great. But what is it, what is it for the individual? And that's what we're really trying to get to in disease del- del- delusion, using the, uh, the, the kind of information that we've developed over the last 30 years to uh, assess individual unique needs. That's great. Yeah. You know, Dr. Bland, um, I just took, we at our office, we just created a nice four hour seminar on menopause. And so, Leah, you, you have a question, I think, for Dr. Bland. I do. All right. I do. Would you help explain to the listeners the findings of the Women Health Initiative study, the use of HRTs or hormone replacement therapy, and the increased risks of heart disease and dementia? Yes, I think that's a very good example, actually, of um, this general topic we're discussing as it relates to uh, uh, preventing chronic illness. You know, the uh, the concept of hormone replacement therapy, which was born out of discoveries made back in the uh, late 1950s and 60s as it relates to the uh, influence that uh, estrogen had on minimizing the symptoms of perimenopause, which includes things like hot flushing and night sweats and and uh, dysphoria or depression in women going through the, the, the change of around 50 years of age into in a menopause. Uh, there was no question that uh, when these women were, were given what at that time was called Primarin, um, and Primarin being uh, a drug that was really uh, built out of uh, equine hormones, horse hormones, basically horse female pregnant mares uh, that were then we 
took their urine and, and the drug companies isolated these hormones and that became the drug uh, permarin and, and women were taking this. So it was, it was said that uh, by giving women estrogen, it not only would reduce uh, their um, risk of, uh, of these perimenopausal symptoms and, and reduce some of the suffering they were having, but it would also, uh, they said, when given along with Provera, which is a, a synthetic progesterone, uh, uh, progesterone derivative, that it would reduce their risk of heart disease, which uh, sounded pretty good. You know, it strengthened their bones, uh, reduce heart disease, um, maybe reduce the risk of cancer, and make them feel better. Wow, this is uh, sounds like the, the golden solution. Uh, there are many people, however, that question this, even back in the 1960s and early 1970s, saying, now, just a minute, you know, we don't know uh, what these um, equine hormones, these horse hormones, do in human women's bodies, uh, mm-hmm. what might be the long-term effects. And to make a long story short, uh, finally, after many decades, uh, we got a, uh, a, a woman who was in charge of the National Institutes of Health. We'd never had a, a woman uh, in that position. And she said, you know, women's health issues ought to be the fundamental way that we research uh, some of the things that we believe to be true. We ought to actually do studies in women. That would sound like a pretty amazing uh, big discovery because before that, all these studies were done in men. So they, yeah. they took they took on this what was called Women's Health Initiative, which was to evaluate certain things that uh, women were being treated with, one of which were these uh, hormones, uh, uh, Primarin and Provera, uh, for the treatment of menopause. And lo and behold, uh, when the data finally came in, in this uh, study that was a very large study done in centers around the United States, they found that uh, it wasn't that these uh, medications actually protected against heart disease. They actually increased the incidence of heart disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was like, whoa, now hold it. How could this happen when we've been prescribing these for years and years and they've been said to be safe and effective, and now suddenly we're being told they're ineffective? Well, the, the, again, this comes back a little bit to uh, genetics because it, it turns out that there are certain women who carry uh, certain genes that are much more sensitive to these uh, horse hormones and Provera in terms of an adverse effect uh, that uh, produces blood clotting and the ultimate risk to uh, a stroke or heart attack than other women. And so uh, this sudden level of disillusionment occurred uh, within women's health uh, medicine saying, you know, let's go back and really examine what we're doing when we start treating these symptoms that uh, women have with a drug because many of these symptoms are actually modifiable by just properly managing their diet and lifestyle. If we do that correctly, we can reduce these very serious uh, menopausal symptoms, and we can do so in such a way as to not increase the risk to heart disease or cancer or stroke. And that, to me, has been a major breakthrough in in women starting to take charge of their bodies for the first time and not being sold a bill of goods that could put them into trouble. That's right. You know, I think, Dr. Bland, just kind of basic information for women because I think there's still a fair number of women that are taking hormone replacement and people are still taking Premarin. And I think because they just are so concerned about hot flashes. And I know when the seminar last uh, Saturday I was talking about, you know, if you quit eating sugar, you know, basically you have to give up that muffin in the morning or some of those basic things or the licorice at night or you know, the glass of wine at night or the two glasses of wine, that probably the hot flashes would decrease considerably and probably go away. And this was like a new connection for people, just kind of this basic information. We've been so programmed to believe that we need to have a medication to control symptoms versus looking at 
what we're really eating. And I guess that's your message, and that's our message too. That's so right. I know, Leah, yeah, we have to take. Yeah. Care. If I could, if I could just interrupt and say that in this case, you're absolutely right because if you start looking at really controlled research studies that have been published in women, in which women started to eat more uh, soy foods that contain. Uh, compounds called genistein and diazine, which help to normalize uh, estrogen levels in, in perimenopausal uh, women. And they start to consume things like uh, Siberian ginseng, which uh, uh, has a um, uh, normalizing effect on hormones. Uh, uh, there, are, there are a whole series of plant-derived materials, including cruciferous vegetables, uh, um, broccoli, cauliflower, or cabbage, uh, that have a positive impact on helping a woman to properly metabolize her her estrogens and her progesterones that are made in her body so that she gets maximum benefit of those even when her ovarian function is starting to decline. Those types of dietary interventions, those types of even uh, supplementary nutrients when given uh, in appropriate doses have been found in clinically controlled studies to actually do exactly what you're saying. That's right. Safely and uh, effectively modulate hormones in, in perimenopausal women so that those hot flushes don't become a problem and she doesn't have to rely on drugs that might produce a risk. Right. That's great. Good, great information. Break time again, unfortunately. Break time. Okay. So hold on the line. You are listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. I want to share another gem of information from Dr. Bland's book, The Disease Delusion. BPA, a common compound found in our environment because it has been used for decades to keep plastic flexible and is also found in many water bottles, sports equipments, DVDs, and other products, has been found to accumulate in our bodies because it does not break down. Its levels is actually measurable in our urine. Elevated urinary levels of BPA has been associated with an increased risk of diabetes, heart disease, and childhood obesity. Now, that is why the use of BPA has now been banned in baby bottles and sippy cups. It's great. And so people can really look at this and know what they're, the risks that they're taking. That's right. That's right. So. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Dishing Up Nutrition. The week of November 17th, we're offering our Nutrition for Weight Loss program in St. Paul, Wyzetta, Maple Grove, Mendota Heights, and North Oaks. If you're wondering, will this work for me? Well, 96% of Nutrition for Weight Loss program participants reported having better health. So this is what Barb, one of the participants, said about her success. I'm happy to report I've lost 62 pounds, dropped four dress sizes, stop my sugar cravings, have more energy, and no more knee pain or heartburn. Wow, it's amazing. You know, we're addressing the cause and not just the symptoms, That's like right. the number on the scale. Mm-hmm. So to sign up, call 651-699-3438, or you can go to weightandwellness.com to sign up. Great. And Dr. Bland, um, I we had a caller that was wondering if your book is an aud- is an audio book. Already, or yes, it is actually. You know, that's very interesting. Uh, the, the gentleman that uh, actually did the audio version, he has a wonderful voice, by the way. I wish I had such a good voice. <laughs> you have a great but, voice. Uh, you do. He, um, he was really remarkable. He, uh, he and I spent quite a bit of time uh, talking together because there's a lot of words in uh, in the book that yes. he was not familiar with. <laughs> he wanted to get the pronunciation just exactly right, and uh, 
and, and when I listened to the audiobook, I thought, wow, th- he really is a good study. It, it's a very listenable uh, uh, delivery. So, yes, it is in audio form. Great. Awesome. Um, so kind of tying into what we've been already talking about uh, with female health, uh, this station, My Talk 107.1, is all about TV and movie and star gossip. So back when Angelina Jolie had the double mastectomy, um, because she carried the BRCA mutation, everyone learned about breast cancer risk and carrying the BRCA gene. In your book, you explain the incidence of breast cancer in women with BRCA gene before 1940 was about 24%. And by 2013, the incidence was 85%. Dr. Bland, why is this increase happening? Well, there you go. I'm so glad that you brought that uh, example out because I think it really characterizes the whole nature of what I'm trying to get across in the book. Uh, This is a pretty revolutionary uh, discovery, I think. Uh, Dr. Mary Claire King, who was the the researcher that actually discovered the BRCA1 and 2 genes and their relationship to breast cancer, she was uh, at the time at the University of California at Berkeley. Now she's at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and actually she just won the uh, Lasker Award this year in medicine, which is one of the most prestigious uh, awards next to the Nobel Prize for her discovery. Uh, She uh, actually published a paper uh, not too many years ago in a very prestigious journal called Science Magazine in which she pointed out that, uh, as you said, that women who had this BRCA1 and 2 gene, this breast cancer supposed gene, uh, the double allele, meaning they got it from both their mother and their father, so it was like the, the, the worst example, that uh, their incidence of breast cancer as they grew up was uh, was was less than 30% of the women, meaning 70% of the women with the gene didn't get or genes didn't get uh, breast cancer. But today, that exact same genetic situation uh, now women uh, get breast cancer more than 85% of the time. So she raises the question: If the genes didn't change, what did change that led to such a great increase in the way those genes express themselves into breast cancer? Mm. And, of course, the wild card is the environment of the woman, her diet, her lifestyle, the things she's exposed to. These are modifiable factors. So, yes, it is unfortunate that a woman might have got the bad luck of the draw and gotten the double allele of BRCA1 and 2. But the other part of the story is even in that very extreme case of relative risk, the modification of how those genes get expressed in breast cancer is directly related uh, to things related to our lifestyle and environment. So I think this is, a, this is, to me, a real aha, because most of us would say, well, that's a genetic disease. There's nothing we can do about it. Now we're seeing even those extreme cases of high genetic risk, it's still modifiable if the right things can be done to improve the way those genes are expressed. And that's, if, it's, if it's that case for BRCA1 and 2, then think about things that are less genetically linked like type 2 diabetes, where there's a very, very low relationship between genes and diabetes. It's related to how we treat our genes. So th- this is, to me, the, the aha of our age. This gives us a huge amount of control over our health. We just have to know what to do, and that's, that's the reason for the book. Great. And so let's, as long as we're talking about women's health, uh, you had a section on statin drugs and using them with women. Would you... Dr. Bland, will you just talk a little bit about that? Because I know for myself, with my so-called genetic history of uh, cardiovascular problems, that's one of the issues that I always have to deal with when I go into my some of my doctors, yeah. not all of them, but I have to say, is, you know, 
Should you be taking a statin drug or not? Well, I want to compliment both of you. I think that, uh, you know, your ability to tease out really some, some little pearls out of the book uh, <laughs> is very, very tremendous. So let's talk quickly about statins. Um, as you know, uh, women, as they go through the menopause and, and, uh, and, and grow older, uh, their relative uh, risk to heart disease actually starts to uh, uh, exceed that of men of the same age. You know, we used to think that heart disease was a male disease, and in younger uh, individuals that is true, that men more frequently get heart disease than women. But after menopause, if you compare age to age, women uh, get, it's the major cause of, uh, of illness and premature death in, in postmenopausal women, and it exceeds that in men, uh, actually. <laughs> and so people have asked the question, uh, shouldn't women be on statins mm-hmm. to lower their cholesterol and to reduce their their risk of, of heart disease? And and uh, as a consequence of that, the um, the guidelines that uh, most doctors are using for treating of cholesterol would have women in menopause on statins. And then suddenly a study was published, this is just a few years ago, in which it was found when they surveyed women that were menopausal that had been on statins, that they found they had an extraordinary increase in diabetes. Hmm. And in fact, almost a 50% increase in diabetes, or almost twice the rate, uh, as a consequence of um, uh, some interaction between statins and their body's metabolism. And so people started asking, well, how could this be? Because aren't we preventing heart disease in these women? Why would they get diabetes? And it turns out that these statin drugs uh, I won't get into too much of the details of the mechanism, but let's just say what they what they do in some women is to poison um, the energy centers of the of, of her body, which uh, are the energy powerhouses called the mitochondria, and, and these mitochondria are necessary for the proper metabolism of sugar in the blood, glucose, and so when you start adversely affecting mitochondria and you can't metabolize sugar, the result is what we call diabetes. So um, it, it brought us once again to remember that there are no drugs that are safe for every human being, that we have to look at the relative individual risk. We have to ask what's the benefit to the risk. And in the case of postmenopausal women being put on statin drugs, there is a relative risk to diabetes. So then that begs the question, what do we do if we want to lower the risk of heart disease, but we don't want to increase the risk of diabetes? And here is where individualized, personalized lifestyle intervention becomes the, uh, the savior because we can lower, and we've demonstrated in many, many studies that we have published over the years, we can lower heart disease risk and cholesterol and, uh, and um, inflammation that's associated with heart disease very, very significantly by personalized lifestyle and diet intervention in women without needing statins so we don't have to run the risk of type 2 diabetes. That's the lesson of the day. That's a great lesson. That's right. That's right. Well, unfortunately, it's break time again. You were listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. Dar and I both want to very much thank you, Dr. Bland, because he's also been very instrumental in developing the certified process for certified nutrition specialists, which we both carry. We are both our certified nutrition specialists. And he continues to provide leadership and knowledge, the passion of scientific research to move the practice of nutrition to a level of importance so we can help clients understand the cause of the disease and to find the solutions. So thank you very much, Dr. Bland. And, we'll and we right. just wanted to tell you that before we run out of time. Because yes, that's, that's right. But <laughs> right. well, we need to go out of break. Right. Thank you.
When my family starts with, what's for dinner, what's for dinner, sometimes I feel the answer is a plate of desperation with a big side of stress. With no plan, it's too easy to hit the drive-thru or the deli for a meal that's overpriced and overprocessed. But now there's an answer to the daily dining dilemma, the Weight and Wellness Way Cookbook and Nutrition Guide. Because it's a cookbook, it's got recipes sure to become family favorites. Because it's a nutrition guide, it explains how to eat for good health. You'll feel good, too, eating real food that tastes delicious. The nutrition educators at Nutritional Weight and Wellness have helped thousands of people use nutrition science to feel their best. And now you can find their wisdom summed up in one book. Then the next time they start with what's to eat, you can say wild rice meatballs or easy almond chicken or an egg bake for brunch. Real food and real nutrition will make it real easy with the Weight and Wellness Cookbook and Nutrition Guide. Get your copy for $24.95 at any Nutritional Weight and Wellness location or online at weightandwellness.com. And I'm sure many of you will be interested in picking up the disease delusion or learning more about the work Dr. Bland is currently conducting. Uh, Dr. Bland in 2002 started a nonprofit organization called Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. And um, Dr. Bland, maybe just tell, tell listeners what you were hoping to accomplish when you started that institute. And then the other question I have, and let you be thinking about that, what's your thoughts about the increase in autoimmune diseases these days? Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I became very uh, convinced that I had the privilege, uh, because I've traveled over 6 million miles the last 25 years, and wow. so many remarkable people around the world that are doing extraordinary things uh, to help us understand better how to take charge of our health that I needed to find ways of getting that information more effectively out to people so that uh, they didn't have to travel the six million miles and they could maybe get the benefit of these conversations that I've had. So uh, we established the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute as kind of an information clearinghouse to um, to provide this information and, and interviews with people that I've met and, and experiences that I've had uh, through different kinds of meetings I've been to. And and then we, uh, we kind of grew that up with a, a group of about 40 uh, professionals that are that are friends and colleagues of mine around the world that are blogging and bringing their information to the uh, to the internet. So uh, PLMI is kind of an information uh, clearinghouse. It's an information site for new things and new discoveries that are being made in in, in health and uh, personalization of healthcare from lifestyle medicine perspective or lifestyle healthcare perspective. And so we we can be found on the internet as at uh, plminstitute.org. Uh, plminstitute.org is where you can. Uh, kind of find us and uh, kind of uh, get a sense as to what's going on at the frontier of, of the new developments in this exciting field. Sounds great. Now, now as it relates to uh, autoimmune disease, I think that's another really uh, wonderful example of uh, this whole theme that we've been talking about, and that is autoimmune disease is really 88 different diagnoses, including things like rheumatoid arthritis and systemic lupitherosthematosis and myasthenia gravis and and. Uh, mm-hmm. Problems related to celiac disease and type one diabetes and thyroiditis and all these different named diseases and what they really relate to is uh, the body's immune system producing uh, what are called antibodies against uh, our cells and starting to attack our cells. So it's it's thought of as a family of diseases that the body's allergic to itself basically and and um, you know kind of killing the the host. Well, this this is um, the old model of uh, autoimmune disease. The new model which uh, I describe in the book, is that uh, the body is not actually producing 
uh, antibodies against itself. It's uh, producing antibodies against uh, our cell that has been damaged. It's uh, against uh, uh, tissues that have undergone uh, changes, so they're no longer the same as they should be. They've been slightly modified by things such as glycation from too much blood uh, sugar or by oxidation from free radical oxidation or from problems related to uh, uh, protein conjugation that come from um, uh, difficulties that our immune system faces as it relates to chronic infection. And so if you actually ask the question, what causes our body to apparently become allergic to itself, not just blunting the immune system, because you probably know now the drugs that we use to treat these autoimmune diseases are uh, immune-suppressive drugs. They, they have um, uh, names like Inbril, and uh, they are drugs that actually uh, put a blanket over the immune system so that it can't operate effectively. They do then shut down the inflammation, but they also increase the risk to infection uh, by the fact that they, they adversely affect the immune system. So the question is not can you shut down the immune system, but can you get it to behave correctly because you've lowered the number of foreigners, foreign things floating around your body that your immune system is reacting to. And the answer, once you ask that question, is absolutely yes. And in uh, the chapter I have in the book that discusses um, this whole concept of immune recognition, I talk about the, uh, the research that's been done to uh, produce diets and lifestyles that actually would lower the burden on the immune system to take away the cause that ultimately relates to autoimmune disease rather than just taking a drug that uh, actually puts a blanket over the immune system and suppresses it. Yeah, that's great. No, that's. I think that's a wonderful explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but Leah, you you were going to ask Doctor Bland a question, I think. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about how much money we spend on chronic disease. We spend over nine thousand dollars per person per year. Diabetes rates have tripled. Forty three million, you know, on mental illness and how it's time for a change in our medical model and that we need to treat the cause and not just the symptom. Um, So really kind of what do you mean by that? And then I think you really highlight nicely with your seven core concepts of imbalance to give people questions that they need to answer to see do they fit in any of those areas of imbalance and what to do about it. Well, I think that's really kind of where the tire meets the road, your question. Um, You know, we not only have this rising tide of... um, of expense to treat chronic disease in the United States. In fact, 70, uh, over 75% of our healthcare expenditures are now spent on treating chronic disease versus acute disease. But this is a global problem. It's a global problem that is rising so rapidly that it is going to bring the eco- economics of the world uh, to its knees. Uh, I recently was in China. And I can't believe in the 25 years I've been going to China how increased the prevalence is now of these conditions of chronic illness, particularly diabetes, Mm. uh, which was virtually uh, very uncommon when I first started going to China 25 years ago. Similarly, in India, it's a virtual epidemic of uh, type 2 diabetes and and its relationship to heart disease that's occurring in India. Similarly, in Brazil and other developing countries. So it's not just the United States issue alone. This is a global problem, mm-hmm. and it's not because our genes suddenly just changed. We're talking about global changes in diseases that have occurred within the last two decades. That is not just because of bad genes. It's because we are feeding our genes or exposing our genes to bad information that is creating then the expression that we call disease. 
So I think that we uh, we not only have important uh, need for ourselves to reduce the burden of chronic disease, and and although we uh, you know are, are exp- spending in the United States uh, almost 50 percent more in healthcare per person than any other country in the world, we are ranked uh, 42nd in, in health outcomes from the World Health Organization. This is what an, uh, the economists would call diminishing returns: spend more, get less. Yeah. So we we have to do something different. It's not just uh, solely uh, because it would be good for people and we have this humanistic uh, compassion and concern that's certainly important but it's also that we just cannot sustain this financially and we're going to get into a a health system in which we have haves and have nots we have those people that can pay for this expensive medicine and then the majority of the people who will not get quality medicine because they can't afford to pay for it Mm -hmm. so we just have to find a new model a new approach and that's what this book is all about it we don't have to invent it it already exists we just have to implement it. We have to think differently, act differently, and we have to leverage the extraordinary revolution of new information that's come out about how our genes function that would then allow us today to turn this health issue around. That's great. Thank you, Dr. Thank Bland. You so we so appreciate you being on Dishing Up Nutrition. Thank you very much. You two are doing a fantastic job. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Dishing Up Nutrition. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. The content and opinions expressed are those of the hosts or presenters. They are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Statements made with respect to products have not been evaluated by the FDA.